Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Cover Story by New Books Network, a podcast about long-form journalism. My name is Aga Popenda, and today we are talking to Alan Sokin about his 2019 Los Angeles Magazine cover story. Thank you so much. Uh, Titled The Biggest Loser, Why Donald Trump Couldn't Hack It in Hollywood. Um, Salkin worked in numerous media outlets and is the author of two books, uh, From Scratch, about the history of the Food Network and The Method to the Madness, how Donald Trump went from penthouse to White House in 15 years, an oral history. Three books, forgetting the third. (laughs) What is it? I'm so sorry. Festivus, the holiday for the rest of us. Uh, was it uh, the first one? or Yes, was it- that was the first one. It was about the holiday that most people learned about from Seinfeld. Wow. Um, so how did it all start for you? Uh, how come you, uh, uh, you are a writer right now? Um, well, you can tell by my correcting you that I'm like pedantic and into details and, you know, accuracy and somehow... I don't know. That matters to me. And I, I just think, you know, I start, I found myself, you know, you can start at any point, but I will say that I found myself in my twenties, um, even actually in, in college, uh, just spontaneously kind of, uh, I would just write poems. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and they just kind of came out of me and I had to do it. And, um, and then it, that was probably my teens and late teens. And then in my twenties, I, um, would be at parties. I'd be scared to talk to women I was attracted to. And I would basically stand in the corner and I ha- always had a notebook with me because I found that I needed to express myself on the page just, you know, desperately as, as a sort of way of coping with life. And so you know, it gave me something to do. I guess some people smoke, you know, and they go outside, but I would just sit in the corner at a party and write about how pretty, you know, she was across the room or whatever. Or maybe I'd be stoned and I'd write a poem or I'd do a little drawing. So I was just, I was already doing what journalists do. I was walking around with a notebook um, without anybody paying me to do it. So, you know, ultimately, and I won't talk forever, but ultimately, um, I was I was writing poems, living in San Francisco, writing little short stories, and um, I eventually took a news writing class down in L.A. 
at UCLA in the summer, and um, my stories were getting published in the you know the kind of college paper, even though I'd already graduated. It was a, a, an extension class at UCLA, um, and you know it was great. I, I got to go places, ask people questions, eat delicious things. Um, some old some friends actually saw my byline, so I was like getting published and. Uh, I applied for journalism school at NYU. I applied to a few of them, but NYU, I was living in Los Angeles, but NYU gave me, New York University gave me a, uh, basically a scholarship to go there because I had, I guess, good grades and I wrote a really good uh, essay about why I wanted to go. And so they just kind of placed a bet on me. Um, I think they also want to because Columbia Journalism School has a better reputation, or it did then, they wanted to sort of grab some people who might have gone there by offering them scholarships. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so, so I ended up at NYU Journalism School, and um, I just immediately gravitated to it. I, it just made total sense to me what this job was. And you know, from there, I ended up getting an a, um, internship at a newspaper in New York called The New York Post, which, while it's a noisy tabloid, especially back then, was actually also a serious news organization. Um, and, you know, and I just, it was, I was living the dream and, you know, writing articles, lots of people read and getting attention for it and making a living. And it was wonderful. How important is the content of what you're writing about to you? And let's talk about those uh, big choices uh, for your books. Uh, you know, I, I mainly thought about uh, food and then politics. Well, that's a good question. I think, um, well, to some extent, you know, whatever a certain writer writes and certainly whatever I write, no matter how silly it might seem, even if it's about a sandwich, um, all the way up to, you know, I covered serious things. I covered murder and mayhem and politics and it still all goes through the writer and it goes through me. And so it's, it's always a kind of ongoing kind of story. Every, every story in a newspaper or magazine, there needs to be a bigger story. There needs to be a point to what you're doing. It needs to say something about life. And that's how I was taught. And I believe that to be true almost even in just like a, a sports story or, a, or an update about an election. Uh, what, what can this say about life? And so, now, even if you're writing about something silly like Festivus or a sandwich, um, you can use that to try to say something. So um, the, the, the books are, you know, in a way, uh, just to maybe jump ahead to the Food Network book, which, yeah, you're right. Those are big choices. Those are years of your life you're giving. Um, and they stick with you uh, sometimes more than any story. You know, they keep getting interviewed about these things over the years. And, um, to me, the food network was a world and it was a world. I don't like to necessarily write about the same things everybody else is already, you know, in the world, everyone's already writing about. I like something new. And I just saw that there was this entire universe there where there were, you know, realities and people in power and money and people out of power, desperate to get it. And that there was a world that had not yet been reported. And so, there was simply also just simply a pleasure in the task uh, for me of just like gathering information, you know, going places I haven't gone before, talking to interesting people, eating food I haven't eaten before, um, 
and uh, then just going home and trying to process it and then just, you know, putting it through the meat grinder of my brain until it comes out as an easy to eat, delicious patty uh, on the page for people. And I just will also add early on in journalism, I made a decision that um, I would I would try always to take stories that either brought me to a beach or gave me something delicious to eat. And wow. I think I followed that pretty well. Except of Donald Trump. Well, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump lives on a beach, but um, and also, you know, he, he has restaurants where there's delicious things to eat. So the way that that starts is that I when I was at the New York Post, which was sort of his favorite newspaper, he was just a regular person you could call about anything and get a quote about it. And so I knew him that way. Everybody at the Post basically had his number. You could call him and get him on the phone within five minutes about almost any story he would weigh in on. And that was, you know, he's a famous guy with a big name. And for me at that time, as just a junior reporter, it was useful. You know, you could you could kind of add a little pep to your story. Now, I understand in, in reporting my book and interviewing a lot of people I worked with then, he was even then, you know, learning how to manipulate the media, um, you know, put pressure on people to write it things the way he wanted to write them. But I will say the story that I really got to know him and his world on was this um, story in the late nineties about, well, what does, what does Donald Trump actually own and how much does he own of it? So he had started, you know, putting his name on buildings that he didn't own outright, which was a new business for him, kind of the Trump branding of things. And so he really actually opened up the books to me and gave me access to a uh, an accountant um, or as kind of business real estate deal manager named um, I'm going to blank right now. I can tell, but uh, anyway, that guy and um, Abe Wallach, and mm-hmm. I really wrote a, a really I, I think a story that has been that even in the, the years following immediately was widely covered and, and, and copied and which is a real landmark. And so by when I went, when I decided to do start reporting on Trump, and this is before the Los Angeles magazine stories, when I with Aaron Short, who I wrote the, the oral history with, um, you know, it starts with the kind of impulse of, well, we we know that there are a lot of stories about Trump that people we know, you know, reported that we're not seeing covered in other books and other articles and on on TV. And that there's this whole store of knowledge about this guy who is obviously, you know, huge news that that could be told. And and especially Aaron, having uh, covered Trump's uh, politics in when he was considering running against now infamous Andrew Cuomo for the governorship of New York, there was a whole story there that people just didn't seem to know about. That Trump had seriously considered, really seriously considered running uh, for governor and that the team that he then eventually uh, leverages to run for president um, it comes kind of out of that gubernatorial run and um, and even the sort of calculations, you can kind of just see how he starts to work and how he starts to hone his identity in preparation for a, a run. And to, to ramble on just a little more longer on that, the 
the perception that we were seeing in the news, and that maybe this is also part of what animates me. It's like, I just can't stand it when I see things that aren't true repeated over and over again. And look, I don't have the power to write every untruth, but some I do. And so this one where this idea that still persists in the media, that Trump ran for president, maybe you even think this, that Trump Trump ran for president on a whim and he wanted to like maybe start a TV network or he just thought, well, I'll just, you know, have fun and this will be a big stunt and I'll come down the, um, uh, the escalator and I'll get all this attention and, you know, I and that he didn't mean to win is completely untrue. Then may I ask you this? What do you think about people uh, that say that he was completely surprised by the fact he won? Well, you isn't it obvious? That, see, I, that question, it's, it's like that sort of seems to, people use that to try to reinforce the idea that he didn't want to win. It's the logic isn't there. Mm-hmm. He didn't think he was going to win the day in the days before the election. Who did? Well, no so, one. No one. He he who ran a good race. He tried to win. He looked at the polls and he said, "I'm not going to win." And so all of a sudden, he won, and he was surprised. It didn't mean that he didn't want to win. It just it drives me crazy. It's not logical. Just think about it. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at anybody who's listening, who who gives a crap. Because right. if you look back on if you if anybody reads our damn book, which is called The Method to the Madness, in which we interview more than a hundred people on the record, everybody from Steve Bannon to Rosie O'Donnell to 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 Roger Stone to Sam Nunberg to Tucker Carlson, you know, from from the the the, the people on the right to the people on the left who hate him. Okay, and and you look at the facts. This guy was scheming, seriously considering running for president all the way back into 1999. And the idea that people even have that the the 1999 run was just to sell a book. Maybe you think that too. Maybe a lot of people listening think that it's not true. It and it is demonstrably not true. It's not even complicated. He wrote other books that sold well, and they were about how to get rich. This was a, a, a policy book, and yes, in which he talks about uh, you know, uh, national health coverage being a good idea, but he also talks about a lot of things that you still see, a lot of anti-immigrant messages and other things, that he was writing this book as part of an exploration to see, could I possibly run for president as a reform party candidate? on the the line that Ross Perot, if anybody remembers any of this, as an independent party candidate, third party candidate, could I run and win? He explores it. He goes on TV. He does has some very memorable TV appearances, including on Jay Leno, where he says many of the things that he'll say later, honing his message and his style of how to do this, understanding the TV ratings are power, something that nobody seemed to understand before. Some people did, but many didn't. That it was could be translated into political power, um, and then he decided after an exploration that he could not win that year, and so he bowed out, and 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 ended up that Pat Buchanan ran on that line on that ticket, and because of Pat Buchanan being there, and because of bad ballot writing and construction in Florida, that threw the election to George W. Bush. But the the point is, um, Trump was serious about running and it is there and the evidence is there. And so, you know, that's why I want to, and with, and with Aaron's support, because Aaron had great sources, 
we wrote that book. Mm-hmm. And you can see, right? Even I bet that even you are like, no, I don't know. This guy seems really to be sure of himself, but I think Trump didn't really, you know, right? Don't you think that? Is that maybe what you think? I honestly do not know what he thinks. Okay. <laughs> what do you think? I think that I want to ask you about the origins (laughs) of this particular uh, article that we will be linking to this episode from 2019 and its relation to this book. And also, uh, what made you decide that uh, you have something interesting to say? And in fact, you did in the era when almost every story was about Trump, right? And I got to say that uh, uh, it's an amazing read. This is the the biggest loser story in LA yes. Magazine, yes. right? And then later I did write another article about Trump impersonators that was also in LA Magazine called "Fake President" that ran in um, like October or yeah October twenty twenty issues. But so this issue, um, and you're looking at the online headline. The 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 actual cover on the magazine says the biggest loser has a really cool drawing of Trump a sort of graphic drawing of Trump poolside in LA with palm trees and a hamburger and fries and a Coke next to him looking at his cell phone. Um, and it says the biggest loser, Donald Trump spent years trying to become a Hollywood mogul. Nobody bought his act. So what happens is when you do any book and you, you end up with lots of extra material and that is completely true in the Trump book. And I've, I've considered doing a podcast, um, repurposing. I have so much like we have great interviews with a lot of these people. I've thought about calling it banal interviews with evil men, you know, playing off the Hannah Arendt line um, about the banality of evil. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's just like, if you're interested in hearing what Steve Bannon's, maybe you're not relationship is, who's a very great and hysterical, crazy interview what his whole history with Trump is, you know, and you want to listen to it for an hour, it's there. And I think some people might want to listen to it. So, but I also, you know, in all the research and, you know, when I do these things, I tend to try to read every other book that's out there that I could at the time. Um, going back to Wayne Barrett's profile, you know, uh, original biography of Trump in the nineties and, and David K. Johnston's books about Trump in Atlantic city. And of course, Michael Wolf's book had come out the first one, about Trump in the White House. Um, so one thing I, you know, picked up on was, and of course it's, I had moved, I was living in New York when I started this project that the book, and then I moved to Los Angeles. So I had a relationship with the editor of LA magazine, Mayor Roshan, and we were talking about ideas. And I said, you know, Trump has this, um, house in, in Beverly Hills that it's really unclear, you know, when he bought it and what it's for, since he always stays at the Beverly Hills hotel. And, you know, he, there's this sort of history of him fantasizing about wanting to be, you know, a Hollywood mogul. And, you know, he, um, you know, people talk about these, some of the, uh, I did a lot of reporting about his, the season of The Apprentice, which was shot in Los Angeles for the book. And that's really where I, I sort of delved deep into, well, he really had a life in Los Angeles. He, um, was not just taping The Apprentice that year. He was taping a golf show. He has a golf course in Southern California. Um, and so I, I got you know interested in that. And um, it just seemed to be this kind of local angle on Donald Trump that people, again, was a sort of people are obsessed with, in a way, Trump is the, you know, the kind of media magician who 
you know, can create a controversy and focus your attention where he wants it. And so, you know, there's subtle ways to kind of undermine that. And one way is to say, hey, 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 over here, like, this is actually a pretty interesting story that actually reveals a lot about this guy and, you know, why he's doing what he's doing now. And so, you know, I, in addition to using the material I already had and source and recalling some sources that I had, um, and also, by the way, tangentially, the, I had a lot of material about the origin of The Apprentice that actually Mark Burnett and Conrad Riggs, who claimed to have you know, kind of created the show around Trump, there is another guy who actually had an idea for a reality show called CEO um, uh, starring Donald Trump or Lee Iacocca, the former chairman of the Chrysler company, the car company. Um, that this guy may, you know, the whole idea may have been somebody else's and there was a lawsuit about it. So that I knew about. So, you know, uh, ended up writing a draft of, of it. It was like a lot of first drafts, kind of messy. And I worked with the editor and, you know, had to make a lot more calls and, and do research. There's a great interview with, uh, er, that Errol Morris, the documentary maker had done with Trump about his, uh, feelings about Hollywood and citizen Kane and other movies that was, there's just some great material out there. And by then interviewing also other people I knew who had interacted with Trump while he was out here, I also uh, was going to make, I was working on a potential documentary about the old um, gossip reporter, well, not entertainment reporter named Rona Barrett. Um, and somebody who worked with her had used to work for Jay Leno. And he had told me a great story about, um, Trump and how he interacted with people in Hollywood that just led me to realize there was a lot there. Um, do you remember anything that was particularly uh, challenging or not working out about that piece? Uh, yeah, I think I I had to. Um, I I really wanted to. When my first draft, I was really trying to kind of deeply tell that story about the origins of the apprentice. Cause I felt like that story had, even, even though I did do a piece it was, I think it ran in either the daily beast or vice that kind of uh, spun off of our book and, and kind of went deep on this alternative history of the apprentice. I just, I think there were details about, the filming of the show and everything that I really kind of got lost in. And even I, what I, I had really tried to do was originally was kind of reconstruct this, uh, this few days in Trump's life actually where, you know, and you, and if you do enough reporting, you can start to, um, figure out where somebody was on a certain day and date. Um, you know, like with the Food Network, I literally got to that point where I kind of knew what happened every single week in the history of the Food Network over 20 years. Wow. But um, with Trump, there was this period where he was taping The Apprentice uh, in Los Angeles where uh, I think Baron uh, Melania was pregnant and Baron was about to be born. So she flies back to New York. And then at some point, he flies up to this... Um, uh, I think a golf tournament up in uh, either Reno or Lake Tahoe. 
And that is where he meets and has his encounter with Stormy Daniels mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because she was, she had been flown up there, you know, to promote, uh, basically porn videos. And, um, you know, of course this, you know, this, this booth of, of women, <laughs> porn star women attracted Trump's interest. And so he, you know, has his liaisons that we all know about. And so, and then he, um, you know, flies back down and he's ha he also, you know, and it's frustrating because there's a little part of the story where I talk about this golf reality show. And I think I was trying to be clear, but I was maybe too, or we, we just ran out of space to really tell that story in full. Um, but the continuing kind of, as we say, TikTok, not about the videos, but about the sort of timeline of Trump's existence in LA, um, he, you know, he would be taping the apprentice at times, or then he would like drive himself down to this golf course in Palos Verdes, which is quite a bit, uh, you know, it's more than an hour away from Beverly Hills generally in traffic. And, um, you know, there's a little line in the story where I talk about, I mean, to wrap up the, the sort of tangent I'm on, just, I wanted to tell more of, well, what was Trump doing there in, in, uh, Lake Tahoe? How did this stormy thing exactly happen and really kind of give you that impression. And it just became in a way less about Trump as a player in Hollywood by, by doing that. Um, and so that wasn't really the story that we decided to tell. And so we had to kind of leave that behind in favor of, well, you know, where did Trump sit at, at a table at the tower, uh, restaurant, you know, at the sunset tower, uh, you know, the restaurant, in the sunset tower hotel. And what did that say about who he saw himself as and who, what kind of player he was trying to be. And just to wrap up the, the golf story, there's a little anecdote in there where I say that, Trump called somebody over the window to his of his car and he's told them, Hey, I'm thinking about giving a scholarship or to, uh, not a scholarship. I'm thinking of sponsoring a woman on the, um, women's golf tour. You know, he just mm -hmm. says this to somebody. Well, you know, I figured people would understand what he was doing, but what was he doing? What he was doing was planting a seed. He figured that if he said that it would, the talk would go around. This guy's a master seducer in his own way with his own power. Right. And so he um, was he figured that some woman, some golf woman, a golf, a female golfer would hear this and think, oh, if I'm nice to Trump, he may make my life a lot easier. Right. Now, I don't think anybody took him up on it, but this the, the, this was his strategy. And that's what's interesting. You know, make it seem like I'm going to spend some money and then see what I can harvest from it. And I'll just wrap up also by uh, this part by saying that. Um, when the story that in the, in the, the stories about Trump on the beach, um, the, uh, the apprentice season, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, just as I was reporting the story basically became available online. And so I was able to watch some of it and sort of, if you start to understand Trump and how he's thinking, some of these little things he says, you know, you start to understand what he's doing and, and how it fits into everything else. And so that was very useful. Um, can you tell us a couple of more sentences about this different of perception or even the reception of Trump in New York and in California and what ultimately make, makes for this difference? I think Trump 
you know, I once actually, when I was at the New York Post, and I, I tried to find this, and I've never found it, um, with even despite a lot of effort. There was a special edition of the newspaper put out around the time of the turn of the millennium, right around two thousand, and it was either right before or right after, and. Um, a lot of powerful New Yorkers wrote columns or ghost wrote, were, had columns ghost written for them for the paper, the special edition. So because I had just reported on Trump for this real estate, you know, ownership story, they assigned me to, um, to call up Donald, the Donald or whatever you want to call him, call up Trump and, um, sort of interview him and then just take his words and turn it into a column, you know, by Donald Trump. So that's what I did. And what Trump talked about was New York, right? It was New York at the in the millennium. And he talked about the kind of game that was played at a high level in New York of power and importance and, you know, how you, uh, you know, that, that, that being in certain restaurants at certain times and making appearances and, and that, that there was a certain game that was being played among these people. And so... Trump understood because he studied it as a kid and, and later, and you know, his mentors, Roy Cohn, these were all uh, New York people. He was given by having all this real estate given to him by his father. Um, he was given real estate power and business power in New York city. And because New York city is, a media obsessed town that is obsessed with its newspapers and magazines and other things um, by, you know, having your name on the page six, which is the gossip page of the New York post or Russian Malloy, or, you know, these other gossip columns in the eighties, nineties and two thousands, there was, there were level levers of power that Trump understood how to exercise in New York. And then in, in Atlantic city, similarly, but LA is different. And I think that in LA, he was nobody basically. Like there's a lot of people with money who come to LA and think they can make movies and they can get power, but it's not like that. It's different. It, um, you know, he, in the end, he sits at the table at the uh, sunset tower, which is sort of reserved for reality show stars. And those kind of people, even though they make a lot of money and even though they keep a lot of Hollywood agents employed, and, you know, and allow them to buy BMWs and, and Teslas. They're not considered the Brad Pitts and the George Clooney's uh, that level. All right. So Trump was a kind of bit player who ran these um, uh, beauty pageants as cheaply as he could, who was a reality star, who he, you know, when he talks about, and, you know, this is in the book and in the article in LA Magazine, but um, it, it's mostly from the, uh, the unused documentary footage from Errol Morris when he, Trump talks about wanting to be, um, like Louis B. Mayer or Goldwyn or, um, some of the early moguls of Hollywood, you know, that he wishes that those guys had real power and he wishes he could have been, you know, he could have really done something in those days. Well, I've been writing another script about somebody. Uh, I've been writing a script about somebody who was a big player back then. And I don't want to say who, but I've been reading a lot of those histories of these guys. And mm -hmm. those guys were, you know, this is decades, half a century before Me Too. They were pigs who 
lived to get starlets naked on their casting couches and that their power was all about, you know, yes, money and yes, you know, being people who made movies and won Academy Awards. But it was also largely about how many women can we get to take off their clothes and have sex with us in our offices during the day? And I, I think that in a lot of ways, Trump loved that version of power. Uh, speaking of women and pursuing women, uh, in your story, uh, there is another interesting uh, uh, celebrity by now, uh, Michael Avenatti. Can you tell this <laughs> particular anecdote? That is- I was amazed by that. And that was another thing that I think drove me to want to do this story, because that was a sort of anecdote that I think I got. I think I got that when I was reporting the book um, that there was some, you know, so I'm, I'm calling Avenatti because he's, you know, obviously at that time was representing Stormy Daniels and he's, he had become this real sort of uh, gadfly against Trump, you know, before Avenatti himself, you know, sort of collapsed in his own legal problems. But um, Avenatti tells this story about being at a bar in Hollywood with his then, a uh, new uh, girlfriend who we would end up marrying and then divorcing. Oh. And, and um, Avenatti uh, goes to the bathroom. And meanwhile, Trump takes a look at her and he, Trump is in the bar for probably while he was, you know, who knows what he, I don't think this is when he was taping apprentice. It was before this, but he was in LA doing something. And Trump has a whole history, which we talk about in the story. It's not just the apprentice years. Trump's LA interest goes all the way back into the eighties. Um, trying to get involved in projects and real estate. Um, even talking about buying the, I think the San Diego Padres at one point, but, um, so Trump, Trump sees, gets a load of this attractive woman in the bar and approaches her and, you know, offers to buy her a drink and is kind of chatting her up. And then, you know, as Avenatti tells the story, um, and, and what's interesting is Avenatti tells this part of the story really with no rancor, with a sense of humor about it, you know, because in some ways these are two, you know, uh, guys who just love the media and love to, you know, in, in a way like, well, I don't want to, you know, love the media. And so, um, you know, Avenatti comes out of the bathroom and he sees Trump uh, chatting up his his date and basically sees that uh, Trump is um, and Trump sees that, you know, she's with Avenatti and he kind of says, all right, yeah, I guess, all right, you know, this isn't going to work out. And he kind of like, you know, shakes Avenatti's hand. And, you know, these guys did not know that later on they would, you know, play a part in a, a bigger part in each other's mm-hmm. lives. And so and then Avenatti's girlfriend says to him, um, I felt like he was looking at me like I was meat hanging on a hook or whatever it is I said in the story, something like that. He was just apprising me like a piece of meat. Um, and so, you know, it's just, what I love about that is just these kind of weird chance encounters that you just, it's just, you know, it's a funny thing. Yeah. So it seems that you're, uh, very good and at all of the, all of the aspects of, uh, journalism. Uh, it seems that you do enjoy reporting. Uh, you are pretty good with fact checking, it seems, and you <laughs> enjoy writing as well. Uh, 
any preferences here? What's your favorite part? Uh, what's something that you um, you know can do properly but not necessarily enjoy that much? Uh, tell me about like your process of like uh, creating a well, n- yeah a nice decent piece. I'm sure it also works for the book, but uh, yeah. Um. Well, look, it's torture. You know, there's no and and honestly, right now. I am involved. It's like I'm almost trying to not write articles right now because it mm-hmm. this the amount of effort, you know, you probably hear people talk about this as you're going through this process of interviewing journalists, but you know, this this story, the biggest loser in LA magazine, um and by the LA magazine is separate from Los, the Los Angeles Times, that's why I made a big deal about it, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. um you know, it's a tough business and uh, I don't know, maybe I made $5,000 for it and it was probably six weeks to two months of work, I'm guessing, even after having written the book. Um, and so, yeah, you know, $5,000 is a nice amount of money, but, um, that is just, that's not my salary. That's what I got paid and that I have to pay my own expenses out of that, my own taxes, you know, and even if I was, clearing $5,000. Well, that's $60,000 a year. And that really isn't enough money to a month. And that's really not enough money to live in a place like Los Angeles. So I'm just saying the, the, the amount of work now, I'm glad I wrote it. I'm proud of it. I will probably end up writing more stories for Los Angeles magazine. Mm -hmm. However, I am doing things like working on podcast projects, writing movie scripts, um, and many other things that are not directly this form of torture. And so, you know, I probably am not the first to say, you know, I think it's important to say the editor of Los Angeles magazine is this wonderfully rare bird. And like I said, his name is Mayor Roshan. He used to edit New York magazine. He had his own magazine called Radar for a while. He's a kind of legendary magazine editor who still managed to take Los Angeles, which was this kind of floundering city magazine with you know badly financed and kind of on its way out um and rejuvenated with these kinds of articles by partly by his own just force of will and his own story ideas but then also by leveraging his relationships with reporters like me and others who we knew from new york and just his long career so and when you you know he's super busy but when he does turn his attention to your story he is brilliant, right? He knows where the story is. He knows how to tell, make suggestions to you about how to rewrite it. And, you know, no matter what kind of sort of mess it was that I turned and I think my first draft was pretty messy. You know, he talked through it. Um, and we eventually through rewriting and cutting and, uh, other processes, you know, we arrive at what, what is there. Now, then there's also this sort of process of, you know, some of the work was done by another editor there and there's some cuts that I didn't like. And so you have to, you know, one thing that I've learned is you got to fight for everything that you really think is important. You got to let a lot of things go. And you also have to go into the magazine, you know, when possible, um, and be there as it's going through the final stages of production when little decisions are made. Oh, this won't, because we're not talking just about the internet. We're talking about a story that was a cover story in a physical magazine. So it had to be only a certain, it had to fit into a space, which means sometimes you have to cut a line and sometimes you get an extra line. You can say, oh, and then you have to sit there real quick and think what got cut that I'd like to put back. So 
that process can I find exciting. That's kind of deadline. Let's you know right here, almost at the finish line. What can we? How can we? And and, and in that time, you can often make stories ten to twenty percent better. And you can also avoid mistakes that that people might throw into a headline to be cute, but then you have to say no, 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 that's not it. That's wrong. We can't do that. Um, or you know, can you use a different photo? All these little things that the the writer of the story can help with. Um, and I, you know, and so I'll say, you know, the part that's the hardest part is when I, I do like doing the interviews and gathering the information. And the hardest part is when you're sitting there. There there is a pleasure sometimes in writing and finally getting to organize it and and you know put it out but it's torture too you're it, it almost has to go th- literally through your body you know and your brain and you've got to like physically like rebirth the whole thing into something you know new that you've added your own take to um you know all the raw information it just comes in and you've got you're the one like i said that becomes the meat grinder and you've got to grind it back out into like and, and you know, and this is this is professional writing. This is not writing book reports, right? So the other part of it is the reader's got to like it. <laughs> you want people to read it, right? So it's got to be funny, and you know, it's got to move, and it's got to not have one. You know, I always, whenever anybody reads a story, and I'm look watching them read it, and they look up and they start to like ask me a question, or they, you know, their interest, they say, oh, they take a bite of their food, even, right? Or a little, I'm like, what happened right there? What were you reading right there? Right, because I want to know what has broken the dream. I want somebody to stay in the dream of my story from the first word to the last, you know. And so it's like, what? Where was the? Even if it was like sometimes it's two words. Where's the little flaw that ruins the flow? That's what I want, I'm trying to find, and that only sometimes comes through rewriting and rewriting, and then letting the thing sit and going back again yourself and having you know friends read it for you and and all this stuff. That's what has. That's what has to happen. Then how did it feel to uh, to write a book with someone? I cannot imagine. Uh, to, of <laughs> course, I'm talking about the method to the madness and Aaron Short. And yeah, what was the nature of this partnership? <laughs> well, Aaron came to me because he had actually gotten laid off from the New York Post, um, and he had no idea how to kind of um, make a living as a freelance writer, which is almost impossible now. But he wanted to know how I had been doing it. And so then I said to him, you know, what have you got? And then I, and I especially said, and this, so this is like uh, probably like October 2018. And I said, you know, Aaron, there's really only one story. It's Donald Trump. You got anything? And what he had originally was this stuff that I talked about early with you that about the, the Andrew Cuomo gubernatorial race in 2014. That, and he told me the stuff that I had not heard before. And so I said to him, you know, I've always wanted – when I did the Food Network book, uh, I did you know hundreds of interviews. And again, even that, I have all this extra material with people like Anthony Bourdain and uh, Bobby Flay that I wish I could repurpose some way. You know, Mario Batali, some people have been me too like him. That uh, Some interesting material in there. And um, so I, I had thought about – and I had been inspired by the ESPN – oral history where, you know, all the people who've ever appeared on or been producers of ESPN, you know, the, the best quotes of theirs are kind of taken out of interviews and, and rearranged and, and organized into a way that tells the story of the rise of that network. And so 
I was very inspired by that in doing the Food Network book. Now, I chose not to do an oral history. I, it's a narrative story with you know lots of different threads, and um, it's really a business story about this media property and how it comes together. And it's and the the bigger story is it's a story about creativity and how it is both fostered and attempted to be destroyed by corporate interests. But um, I did still want to do an oral history. And so I said to Aaron, it sounds like you have good sources. Why don't you read this ESPN book um, and see what you can throw together from, you know, interview a few more of your sources about this gubernatorial race. And let's see what you can sort of in a rough draft throw together about that. And let's just sort of see if we can get a few pages or almost a whole sample chapter done on this. And then maybe there's a book in it. Um, you know, I mean, I was working on just like now I was working on a million things. and I thought, well, let's see what happens with this. And he comes back to me with that. And then I sort of was the in, in on that material. I kind of did a lot of rewriting, reorganizing, you know, asking him for more stuff. I maybe did. a. I can't know. If, I don't know if I did any of my own interviews originally. Eventually, you know, it became we were both doing interviews madly. And there's a whole process to how we got interviews and we had to hire help in order to book interviews and all this stuff. But um but in a way, I was sort of the senior producer on that. It was like, not that it wasn't a collaboration because it was, and it, I couldn't have done it without Aaron in particular because of his sources. But because I had done books before and maybe had a little more experience than Aaron and maybe even a, a more forceful and dynamic personality, uh, you know, Aaron's more of just a like, yes, those are the facts and um, okay, what happened next? And, you know, that's kind of him. Um, you know. I was a, I was, I kind of was in control in a way. And, and in the end we wrote a good sample chapter. I knew how to write a book proposal. We found an agent who, cause I was, I had, my old agent had left their company and I didn't have a new one at the time. And so I ended up going with a, a friend of mine who had a great age, who has a great agency named Ifat. And, um, you know, we, we put together a, a really good book proposal and we found a, you know, an outlet for it. Now I'll, I'll say this too, frustratingly, uh, the outlet for it was the editor was named Adam is named Adam Bellow and he's no longer at this publisher, but he's a guy who's published a lot of famous conservative books. And so in a way the book got, even though it's a, no, a rare nonpartisan book about Trump, with, you know, just trying to tell the story in a straightforward way. How did this guy, you know, basically what, what is the method to the madness? How did he figure out how to, you know, get this mm -hmm. nomination and eventually win? The book kind of got marketed as if it, and the cover, which I hated the original cover, which has Trump sort of smiling with his thumbs up, um, got positioned as this, maybe a conservative book. And I, and I think that, really did not position it properly in the market and it was very frustrating for me. I didn't want to, you know, and we ended up going on some interesting conservative shows and, you know, not, not that there's, they're not legitimate news sources, but it was, it was, uh, sometimes frustrating. Interesting. Uh, I would think that it would be very clear from how you talking about it, uh, from your other writings, uh, you know, uh, Anyway, I, well, but I, I was trying to be very nonpartisan in the book and I, and I, because I thought, and I still do think that, you know, even in what I'm saying to you about, you know, when I get agitated about people's misconceptions, that is for the most part, a, I don't know what you want to call it, blue state, liberal, 
you know, left-wing media perspective that this guy is just a, a stupid orange joker who got lucky, right? And I am here to give Trump his credit, just as many people on the left who I interviewed, including Al Sharpton and Donnie Deutsch, uh, agreed with. Like, Trump is a genius. Now, that, you know, maybe you could say an evil genius, um, but I think rather than dismissing him as a fool, it's much more interesting to say, well, let's look at this in a cool-handed way. Let's let these people who you might think are evil just talk and treat them as if they're human beings with their own belief that they aren't just trying to like ruin the world. They think that their ideas are going to help the world. And, you know, well, tell me what your thinking was. Just let me hear it. And then, you know, it's revolutionary, but it didn't used to be. Let the readers take this information and do something with it. Find it interesting. But Trump, he may be a clown in his own way. He may be evil. Um, And obviously, a lot of what he did was horrendous and probably deserving of jail. However, to call him stupid and not to understand his version of intuitive genius is foolish. But not enough for LA. Well, (laughs) it didn't work here. But you know what? Uh, if he doesn't run for president again, you know, I think in the end of the, of the article, I make that point, you know, he may come back, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah, this is a town where, you know, the people on the right, like James Woods and Mel Gibson and, uh, um, what's his name? Um, uh, Pat Boone and some of these uh, folks are, uh, Scott Bayo, you know, they are kind of persona non grata in a lot of circles and, it may be hard to be, you know, get power in this kind of town, but w- w- I was among those who thought that even knowing Trump, you know, how I did, which is not like we're friends, but just understanding him and his history, I didn't think he was going to win either, you know? And so it's hard to put anything past this guy. He has people believing that he didn't, you know, that, that things that are true are not true. And the things that are not true are true. It's he is. It's amazing. So who knows what he's capable of? Um, okay, um, uh, I'll ask you two more quick questions. And uh, I was wondering if there is a, a piece that you uh, wrote that you are proud of, uh, or particularly proud of, that uh, I, you know was kind of is lost in history and people do not mention it that often or a, another version of that question. What is the work that you are the most proud of? Is it always your most recent work? Uh, um, you know, I really do like the other article I wrote about Trump that were really about, it really wasn't about Trump. It was about presidential impersonators and it was in Los mm-hmm. Angeles magazine. But I'll tell you, there's an article that it really hasn't been forgotten, but it was in the New York Times probably in like 07 or I think 07. And it's called um, uh, Boys of Summer Who Linger Till Autumn. And it is about um, men over 40 in like summer share houses in the Hamptons who are kind of like trying to preserve their youths and youths, youths, youth, youth, who will not, don't want to grow up and don't want to kind of take on the commitments of marriage and children. And uh, I think 
possibly because I feared becoming one of those guys and I studied them closely and I kind of knew the whole scene out there in the Hamptons, which, you know, at the East End of Long Island, now known as a kind of, and, and then too, known as a playground for the rich. But they're not just rich people are out there. There's this other kind of partying contingent. Um, it's harder and harder now because the, the real estate values are, you know, even higher than they were then. It's crowded a lot of people out, but I think I just, I nailed that story. And there's a, my, one of my favorite little things I ever wrote is in there where this one guy who, um, he's, he plays in this like little summer band and he, you know, he's refuses to grow up and he's on this, uh, their house is on this sort of quiet street and he's describing, um, then how the neighbors, you know, kind of don't bother them. And he says, oh, the, the guy on the left is, uh, you know, he just lets us do what we want. And then McCartney, you know, he, he's very rarely here. And then I wrote, he said, referring to Paul McCartney, who is also in a band. And to me, that sort of dry humor of like, obviously the band that Paul McCartney is in is the Beatles or was in. And that somehow this guy was felt close enough to Paul McCartney to refer to him by one name and that he was, there was just something about that where I felt like I kind of nailed the essence of what I find is funny, the kind of dry, but kind of like cutting humor that, that, uh, I really am proud of now, you know, I'll tell you, there's another story I did for the New York post that I often want to follow up on, which was, um, there was a, there was a, uh, a child who had been kind of separated from her mother because of immigration reasons and was sort of stuck in Jamaica and wasn't being allowed to come into the United States. And uh, this was a story tip that came through somebody at the New York Post, but I ended up reporting it. And it ended up with like Chuck Schumer, who was then now obviously the leader of the Senate, but then was just uh, in the House of Representatives representing a district in Brooklyn. Uh, and, and Chuck uh, Representative Schumer then represent, uh, sort of made a motion in Congress that allowed this child to be reunited with her mother. And then, you know, a bunch of reporters all flew down to Jamaica um, to kind of rescue the, this child. And this wonderful reunion happened. And I don't know, maybe it's too sappy. And I, I'm not saying I deserve credit for all this, but like, you know, no, some, something I did got this media attention that made this nice outcome happen. That's incredible. And I will link both of these stories to this episode. Uh, finally, Alan, what are you working on these days? <sighs> well, I'll tell you a couple things. One, one is, uh, I talk about that Trump impersonator story and presidential. I've been, I've recorded six episodes of a podcast called the super fantastic Donald Trump podcast live from Mar-a-Lago in which, um, this guy that I met because of the book, Daryl Silver, who was a producer on the first few seasons of the apprentice, um, and John DiDomenico, who's the world's greatest, uh, Trump impersonator. Uh, we kind of, you know, it's frustrating the way that Trump never seems to answer direct questions and always fends things off and won't sit with interviews with serious people. And so we kind of figured out, well, let's get, let's get our version of Trump, who's actually brilliant and really does understand Trump's mindset to kind of sit and we'll talk about serious issues with, uh, in a funny way with uh, 
guests who know about different topics like Trump's legal issues or or the military or whatever. And uh, so we kind of and, and the idea is that Donald Trump himself has hired Daryl and I to fly down to a bunker at Mar-a-Lago and kind of produce this podcast for him, which he will sort of drop into and out of on a whim. And so that's our the super fantastic Donald coming soon to a podcast service near you. It's not yet out. And then I'll, I'm also working on um, actually another podcast about a certain uh, thing that has to do with pop culture that I'm going to be very vague about that is I'm working with a um, very successful documentary producer on making. And then finally, I'll say that I'm in a, do- I'm in a documentary that that producer made. I'm also going to be vague about this. That's going to be probably on Netflix in 2022, in which supposedly people who have seen it um, really love the documentary. So look for me on Netflix in the, in the next year. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a cover story, and we were talking with Alan Sutton. Thank you. <laughs>